Hi, everybody. Good morning. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 11. We're going to talk about bankruptcy today. Chapter 11, that's bankruptcy, right? Sorry, no, we're not actually going to talk about money. But anyway, uh, Genesis 11. Genesis 11. Uh, by the way, while I'm turning there, uh, I will give you all uh, just one uh, a plug. I hope that uh, kids, especially looking forward to next weekend's egg hunt, uh, should be a really good time. Uh, it'll be uh, properly uh, safe and distanced and masked and all that. It'll be outside, uh, but it's going to kind of be our like uh, like a toe in the water over like you know what it kind of looks like just folks to start gathering for an event together. Um, and so we're really looking forward to that. Uh, shouldn't be too large of a group. We're kind of actually intentionally keeping it in house, you know. Um, but um, it should be a a lot of fun. We actually had a trial run yesterday. Uh, in our backyard, uh, where, where James and Henry were running around trying to hide Easter eggs for each other. Uh, so hopefully we won't like find some in a lawnmower or something like that later on this spring, but uh, we'll see how it goes. But uh, please check out your Inu Hope um, and uh, uh, sign up for the egg hunt. That'd be great. All right, Genesis chapter 11. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had a brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its, with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they'll do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So come, let us go down and confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them all over the face of the earth. So, last week, we saw Noah get off the ark, and what did he do? He worshiped God. We saw him survive. This is Noah. We saw Noah survive the, the chaos of the flood and wait patiently for the storm to subside and the waters to recede and then walked onto dry land. And when he walked onto dry land, the, the only thing he could think to do was worship the one who had gotten him through the storm. The problem was, the problem is... Noah's descendants don't follow suit. We really don't know much about them other than their names and a little bit of the territories where they settled, but the, the thing that we learn from Genesis chapter 10 is that various cultures were being developed by Noah's descendants and various cultures with their own lands, customs, and languages. So, when we get to chapter 11... And the first thing we read is that the whole earth had one language. It's as if the, the story of the Tower of Babel is kind of like 
above the narrative. You, you know how in some books, uh, especially like nonfiction books, um, that you're reading, they, they sometimes have like subsections that are often in like a gray box that, that's somewhat pertinent to the rest of the material on the page, but it doesn't actually fit in with the text itself. Uh, like the author knew you'd be asking a question and they want to have like a kind of a sidebar to anticipate that. That's what is kind of what's going on here. <laughs> Thing is, if you're anything like me, um, this story of the Tower of Babel prompts far more questions than answers. Uh, again, it would seem that the point here is the truth in the story rather than the truth of the story. So let's look at the story. Evidently, Noah's descendants at some point had migrated from the east and east and gathered in a settlement on the plain of the land of Shinar, uh, modern-day Iraq. So at this point, something happens, though, that has happened repeatedly throughout the course of history. And it's funny, every time this particular thing happens, people somehow forget that it's a story that's actually been told over and over and over and over again. We are really good at forgetting this particular story. It is the story of technology. In this story, it's the development of the brick, which was the technological advancement of the day, which allows them to build buildings. The brick allowed the people to start building buildings. And it's important to note that this isn't a bad thing. This building, for instance, is made of a lot of bricks. It's not a bad thing in and of itself. Presumably, there were lots of good things that came from this advancement. It created better shelters from weather and, and helped to secure the people in dwelling places. This, in turn, gave them time to think and to plan and to consider what they were going to do with their next day. Uh, it doesn't take too much imagination to think about how the development of the brick would lead to other advancements. For instance, the protection and then education of children. Like any technological advancement, though, here's the thing. The brick could be used as a tool to continue that fundamental mission, that fundamental call of God that we saw last week, which is to be fruitful and multiply. Or it could be used for something else. May 24th. 1844. Professor Samuel Morse sat amongst a crowd of distinguished national leaders in the building of the United States Supreme Court in Washington, D.C. He then tapped out a message on a device that traveled through cogs and coiled wires to his associate 40 miles away in Baltimore, who received the message and sent it back to the professor. The historian Daniel Walker Howe says, the invention had, they had demonstrated was designed, was destined to change the world. For thousands of years, messages had been limited by the speed with which messages, messengers could travel and the distance at which eyes could see signals such as flags or smoke. Neither Alexander the Great nor Benjamin Franklin knew anything faster than a galloping horse. Now, Instant long-distance communication became a practical reality. It was a key to what Howell calls the, the communications revolution, which is um, an important aspect of, of 19th century history. 
It had substantial influence on the marketplace, as well as the spread of daily news. And and it also gave Christians, at, at the time, excitement about a new way to help spread the gospel. Morse was actually a dedicated follower of Christ, and the text of the message that he sent uh, was actually a quote from the book of Numbers, Numbers 23.23. Does anybody know what it was? What hath God wrought? Or what a great thing God has done. Of course, in Numbers, that's a different story altogether, involving a, a sorcerer and a talking donkey, but back to Morse. Um, at the time, he was in love with this young girl named Annie Ellsworth, who suggested the phrase, but, but Morse believed that the telegraph would be an, an instrument of providence. After choosing this phrase, he said that the message, he said this, he said, the message baptized the American telegraph with the name of its author. Technology often is birthed out of the best of intentions. The, the question was, would it remain a tool like the brick, would it remain a tool, or would it become something else, something darker? Back to Genesis. So, the people have themselves the ability now to make bricks, and they say, all right, let's see what these puppies could really do. What we'll do is we're going to build a city with this great big skyscraper tower, and the tower will be a monument of human ingenuity. We're going to do great things if we just stick together. That's what verse 4 says, right? You see, the story, this story is a story of unity and diversity and God's will for both. The people had desired to create this great and powerful city with a symbol at the center that gave them a sense of pride. The people wanted unity, but they wanted it by their own power. They sought um, self-sufficiency. They sought autonomy that placed themselves at the center. They wanted to see themselves on the throne. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They desired independence. They desired power. But the first half of the story doesn't mention God at all. God desired unity. That's been the story since the beginning. His desire was, though, that that he would be at the center. The lesson that we've heard from each of these Genesis stories comes from the disaster of what happens when human beings place themselves in a position that only God can occupy. Their desire for unity did not come from one of holy, unified mission of life adherence. It didn't come from God. God's desire for unity would be of that continued covenant relationship with Him, the people living out His purposes and relying on His life-giving power. But, but that's not what the people wanted. No, they, they, they wanted to make a name for themselves. I want to see my name on that tower. You'll notice in Old Testament prophecies, it comes up repeatedly, how when when God talks about, through the prophets, when when God talks about redemption and and restoration, specifically in regards to to Israel, there's there's often a quote that, that says something to the effect of, they will be my people and I will be their God. 
And we kind of read on past this as if it's obvious, but the lesson of the Tower of Babel is that it's actually not all that obvious. Who has which name tag? Ambition. Ambition is a word that you would do well to pray over. All of us would do well to pray over. Young person graduates high school. We have a whole slew of high school graduates coming up this year. It's pretty cool. They're all excited about the different schools they're going to. It's just really exciting to, to, to see the, them on the cusp, on the edge of, of, of just life. And Anyway, here's this young person. You can imagine graduating high school or graduating college, and, and they apply for a job, and, and they come in for a job interview, and the, and the interviewer asks them about themselves and, and, and tells them a little bit about the job description, and there's probably time for like friendly yet professional discourse and exchange. And, and then a good interviewer will, will hopefully ask the most important question. It, it was a question that, um, that blindsided a candidate who was considering running for president back in 1980. Uh, the, the journalist Roger Mudd, who uh, passed away actually earlier this month, he, he, he sat down with his candidate and he asked a simple question. Why do you want to be president? Why do you want the job? It's like he didn't see the answer coming. And he just kind of had this like deer in a headlights look. Why, why do you want to work here? The interviewer might say. Simple question. One that all of us should probably have a right answer to. Probably should have at least an answer to in regards to our job. It doesn't have to be a complicated answer. And it's okay if the answer certainly has to do with money. Um, but we should probably think about why we're doing what we're doing. Something better than, well, it's, it's just what we're supposed to do, right? You're an ambitious young person who has big city dreams of building the tower of accomplishment. Okay. Why? It's been said that ambition, at its best, is enthusiasm with purpose. If that's our working definition, then the real question is whether or not ambition is bad. It's what are you ambitious for? Friends, I have a, I have a high regard for men and women of ambition, specifically as it relates to business. If you're a business owner or a manager of people for the purposes of some sort of industry or simply an employee of a business... Um, I want you to know that I'm glad you're here. I am so glad that you are a part of our community. You need to know, if you're a part of a business, specifically a local business, but even a big business, if you're a part of a business, I am so glad. You need to know that you are valued by the church, and you are specifically valued by this church. I hope that you would never get the impression that what we think you ought to do if you really followed Jesus, would be to quit your business, quit your job, and join the ministry or some nonprofit. Now, the world needs ministers, and the world needs folks to work at nonprofits. And, but the truth is, we live in a capitalist business society, and that means that we need business leaders with Christ like integrity. I believe that for a Christian, business can actually be a calling. This is for lots of reasons, namely, uh, first of all, where do you think money for churches and nonprofits come from? Uh, but also, 
business is a place where men and women can better themselves. The business leader can help to create a workplace that's worth giving your life to. The business leader can, can help craft a team where the contributions of the individual serve a greater purpose. They can be advocates for their employees, helping to support families, furthering education. The church should be a place where, where business leaders are valued and encouraged and reminded that what they do matters. But the question, ambitious one, is who's at the center of your ambition? Whose name is on the tower at the center of your city? Because if it's yours, then that means it's not God's. If you and your empire are at the center of your purpose, then by definition, your actions will be selfish in nature. That's not a word just for business leaders, of course. It's a word for any of our tiny little empires, our homes, our families, our education, our resume, our skill set, our social media appearance. These are all good things, at least they can be, that will seem, these things will seem deceptively like very good options for the center of our existence. Career, spouse, kids, citizenship, ethnicity, culture, intelligence, even our sense of justice, right, for this broken world and our, on our work to right the wrongs of society. All of those things will seem like they fit very nicely as the centerpiece of your existence, as the centerpiece of your lives. But I am here this morning to tell you that all of those things will ultimately let you down through the common avenues of tragedy, failure, or just the natural progression of time. The parents who made their marriage all about their kids are in for a rude awakening when the kids grow up, move out, and discover their own identities. They leave, and it's like, well, who are we now? The person who put all of their hope in in that relationship, struggles to see themselves apart from them. And, and they say, they find themselves after a breakup and, and saying, if, if, if I'm not with them, who am I? The truth is that relationships end. Businesses fall. Kids grow up. When we place our hopes in finite things, we shouldn't be surprised when they end. But don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we shouldn't give our lives to those things. They just shouldn't define our existence. It's not that we shouldn't give our lives to those things. It's that those things shouldn't be our life. There's lots of worthwhile things to give your life to, but there's only one thing. There's only one person who should be your life. Only God is worthy of being at the center of your existence. The funny and beautiful thing is that, though, is that when God occupies the center throne of your life and all of those other things, the career, the marriage, the kids, they are now all placed in right perspective and benefit from it far greater than if they themselves were at the center of your existence. You really think it's going to benefit your kids for God to be the center, for God to be the one you're worshiping rather than your kids. You think it's going to benefit your business 
for God to be the center of existence rather than, than your business. Only God can be this, this, our center tower because only God is eternal, right? He's the author of life itself, as, as Samuel Morris said, and he's the, the hope for eternal life in the future. When we put other things on the throne, those things will inevitably fall apart. In the story, God does uh, God sees this, this tower of self-idolatry, and he breaks it up. Now, we might be surprised uh, that he does that because, you know, isn't God all about unity, right? Unity's good, right? Why did God break them up? We, we talk about unity all the time. The thing is, this is a very old story, and it's one of the first stories that we see in the Bible. The thing is, these people... They weren't ready to be one people because they forgot who their king was. God desires unity, but God also desires scattering. Diversity. Diversity is a good thing. The concept that God created us each as unique human beings, the idea that we use our unique gifts to serve a common cause is a very good thing and one that is crucial for the life of the church. The problem is, though, that we often, we far too often, we settle for diversity for the sake of diversity. We celebrate diversity as a means to an end, but it's so much better than that. The reason why we should value diversity is for the sake of unity, but specifically unity in God. And that's what the people of the Tower of Babel forgot. That's the lesson here. They were broken up to keep them from a self-centered, prideful existence where the people were God. Because we want to make a name for ourselves, they said. Evidently, the people had forgotten that God, forgotten God and that, that is what led to their dispersion. But the Tower of Babel is nowhere near the end of the story. If you turn the page and have a look at the beginning of chapter 12, you see God's plan. It's kind of a crazy plan. He calls one people, one guy, an old man at that, to be his rescue mission to save the world. And when God told Abraham that, or Abram that, Abram must have thought it was crazy talk. But what God was really doing was starting a mission in Abraham to bring the world back together. He says, I'm going to bless those who bless you, I'm going to curse those who curse you, and through you, the entire world's going to experience blessing. The story of Abraham is the story of Israel, and the story of Israel is the story of Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul tells the Ephesians, this is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, get this, in Him we have redemption through His blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to, get this, unite all things, not just some things, all things, to unite 
all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You see, what the people in Genesis 11 weren't ready for, they weren't ready to be unified because they forgot who their king was. But in Jesus, God reminds humanity not only who the real king is, but also he reminds them how much he loves them, how much he longs for them to to come home. In Christ, he has offered us blessing. He's offered us adoption. He's offered us redemption. He's offered redemption to your story. He's offered forgiveness, not according to the, to the righteous things you've done. You, God's not going to forgive you because, well, you, you, you helped a little old lady across the street or you helped work at a, at a charity or something like that. Those are good things, but God's not, God's not looking at your righteousness. You're not earning his love. No, he loves you because of the cor- uh, according to his grace, according to to the riches of His grace, grace that He lavishes upon us with reckless generosity in order that in Him we might have wisdom and insight to be the one humanity that we were originally designed to be. In Christ alone, our hope is found. In Christ alone, we see the name that should be at the center of that that tower, the name on the tower. In Christ alone, we have our one true king. In Christ alone, we find the reason for unification. The story of the Tower of Babel is intimately connected with another story. And that's the story of Pentecost, which we'll look at in detail in a few months. But before that, after the death and and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the Holy Spirit moves through the early church and suddenly people of various languages, you know, they start to understand each other. It's a sign that in Christ, God is reversing the curse and bringing the people back to be unified again. But we can't get ahead of ourselves, right? Before we are united in God's kingdom, we and consider the acts of of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, we first have to look, we first have to consider what it looks like for God to be on the throne. Because it looks like something very specific, and it looks like something maybe that might looks like something that will surprise us. That might surprise us. What does it look like for God's name to be on that tower? For the answer to that question, we'll turn to Palm Sunday, and then Good Friday, and Easter. More on that later. But for now, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the work that you've done in our lives and the work that you've, you've, the way you've spoken over the ages. And Father, help us to remember that you alone are worthy of being the centerpiece. You alone are worthy of being the Lord of our hearts. Help us not to, to, to fall for the lie that other things belong there, even good things. Help us to remember that if, that if you're the Lord, then that means everything else is put in proper perspective. Everything else is benefited from you being at the center of our existence. But in light of that, Father, I pray for our, I pray for our kids. I pray for our marriages. I pray for, um, for, for business leaders, for those in, in businesses. I pray for uh, ministry leaders. I pray for those who are working at, uh, in, in areas of the government or in um, nonprofits. Lord, there is so much work that your good work that your people 
are doing, but, but help us to keep you at the center. Help us to do those things, not, because of, not through our own ambition, not to make a name for ourselves, but to make a name for you, to spread your name, to praise your name, because it's the only name that's worth following. It's the only name worth praising. It's in the most holy name of Jesus Christ that we pray all these things. Amen.